Um, do you want me to start? I can start. <laughs> good question. I was like, how do we do this? No, I'll, I'll start. I have a good way of doing it. Okay, Because I've taken over other podcasts. I the- love it. What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. I'm taking over Jenny Blake's podcast for the day, the Pivot Podcast. This is James Altucher, and I'm so excited for you, Jenny, because your book, Pivot, comes out today. I've been waiting anxiously for this release. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to have you here taking over my show. Yeah, I'm going to take over, and I'm going to ask you all about your book. Is that okay? That's perfect. And you also took over the back cover because you're front and center on the back, your blurb. That's excellent. And you got you got a lot of great blurbs, by the way, for that book. I mean, I feel like... <laughs> Uh, six or seven of those blurbs, have, the guys have been guests on my podcast. Like The thing that I feel so lucky about is that many of these people are friends. And I've been doing this 10 years now of the online blogger thing. And so it, it felt really nice that in asking for blurbs, I wasn't just emailing strangers. These are actually people who I've interviewed on my show. I, I met you just by running into you five times in a row <laughs> in New York. And I think New York is such a wonderful place for continuing to build those relationships and deepen them. It's true, you know, and uh, this is off on a tan. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you all tangents these questions of the, the book. But yeah, like, everyone's sick of me by now. Tangents are good. No, no one's ever <laughs> sick of you. So, so do you think, um, you know, in in New York City and in San Francisco and let's say in Austin and other cities, there's some serendipity that happens where you do keep running into people. Like I ran into you. I don't know when the first time we met was, maybe Michael Ellsberg's conference. But then I ran into you at Lewis House book launch. Yep. Then a week later. Uh, outside the Grey Dog, which is a restaurant near where we both live. I was meeting Matt Kepnes, you know, yeah. Nomadic Matt, who's also been on one of my podcasts. Uh, and then you were there. the VIP party for Flavor Pill. Oh, yeah, yeah, and right, right, the we Flavor like, Pill party. Dude, it was like the fifth time we had run into each other, and we actually got to talk for longer. And, th- and then I was on your, wasn't I on your first podcast? Yes, <laughs> you kicked off New Year's, January 1st, 2015? 2016. What the heck year is it? Yeah, 2016. Yeah, 2016. <laughs> yeah I remember doing that. So, okay. So Pivot comes out today. Tell me the basic idea, and then we're going to dive into your... I want to really dive into your... So you used to work at Google. You used to do all these things, or you, and you still do. I'm going to dive into everything, and I want to get into the details of how I am personally in need of a pivot. So I'm going to ask for your advice. I love it. Okay, can't wait. And let me also say, I live for serendipity. So I love cities for that exact reason. And for this reason, that's how we're here right now. But what if you live in, like, I don't know, a, uh, a suburb, and you don't have that serendipity? Can you still kind of get, you know, get what you need? I do think you can, because I think serendipity doesn't play. We, we live in a lo- nonlinear universe. Time and space are just constructs. So the exact city doesn't matter. But certainly if that person could take a trip to New York, they might find they would double down on the serendipity magic a little bit. It's true. I feel like uh, like a friend of mine's visiting New York from a suburb uh, outside of uh, somewhere in California, and he's here this week, and he's just stacked his days with exactly. lunches and dinners. So I guess he gets, he forces in a 10-day period, that serendipity. That's why so many people say they could never live here, because I think when they come, they cram the days so full. Whereas you and I have learned to create routines and have more of a calm, steady existence. But It's, it's amazing how many people I've met 
just by simply lying down on the sidewalk and letting people walk around me. And people are like, is that you? Yeah. And uh, then or I like, do meet people. I've run into you at McNally Jackson. Sometimes if I'm having a hard day, I go to the bookstore. It's my happy place. And one time I just saw James in there and I was having kind of a rough afternoon and he was sitting there having coffee. And I sat down and next thing I know, it's two hours later and I've had now the best afternoon and I was on my way. Uh, I was worried I wasted your whole day. <laughs> no. But, okay, okay so, so, so tell me, first off, tell me, tell me who you are. Where'd you come from? Well, I was born and raised in San Francisco, and then I moved to Palo Alto in seventh grade. So I've always loved technology and computers. And Were your parents in technology? My like- mom almost majored in computer science, and then she got really sick of programming cards. She went to UC Berkeley in the late 60s, and so she pivoted to a history major and later landscape architecture. And so, so wait, she, she looks back on that this. time and says she could have been rich if well, <laughs> she I, had well, stayed with it. It's true. She probably could have gotten wealthy by staying with it, particularly at that time if she was young in the late 60s. It's sort of like how Bill Gates was prob- was a teenager in the late 60s. But um, in, your, in your book, you kind of talk about how pivots are, are sort of related based on, um, you know, kind of how your different backgrounds overlap. So she was in computer science and then history, but then ended up in landscape architecture. How did her pivots actually work? My mom is, she's a genius. She has a very analytical mind, and she's been the campus planner, the head landscape architect for Stanford University for 20 years. Wow. So anyone who's been there has seen my mom's influence on the campus. And I think that that sort of linear problem-solving brain, she she has kind of say over everything that happens outside of the buildings, where the buildings go, where the trees go, where the bike racks go, whether they should put in a roundabout. So it's almost like a so, kind of a programming problem, like everything exactly. five steps ahead exactly. to, to figure things out. Exactly, and the history major piece is that's kind of the the culture and the history and the feeling of a place. And and I think she she explored, she dabbled, but by the time that she went to graduate school, it was a nice confluence of things. And then she is someone who has then gone really deep in that career path. She didn't think I should leave Google when I did. I put this in the book. We still don't agree because my mom's been at Stanford 20 years. Even after you've been on my podcast, she doesn't (laughs) think it's been the right move for you? She just says, to this day, we agree to disagree on when I made the decision to leave. She would have liked me to keep working at Google and move to New York while working for Google. And I felt like when I was ready to go, I was ready. It would not have been fair. Well, how did you get the job at Google? Let's start there. What were you doing? This is really interesting. So I had been the first employee at a startup company. I left school early. I took a leave of absence. And I would have minored in computer science as well, actually, at UCLA. But I left. I figured, what better than help build a startup? And it was doing political polling. And it was during the 2004 election. So cool. That's right where I wanted to be because my other ideal career at the time was to be working on a political campaign. Okay, so this really yeah. was the combination was of your two confluence. interests. Yeah, and it was in Palo Alto, which was my hometown. So I moved home as a first employee, helped set up the office as the office manager, webmaster, and marketing assistant. One of my many, many tasks was managing our Google AdWords accounts. And when I hit a plateau at the startup, and I had at one time three managers all telling me what to do, and I just felt bored. And I, I say, it, this is the career conversation I regret the most is the one I never had, which was to say to the founder, I'm struggling here. And instead, I just started looking elsewhere. I only applied to one company because I had stock options at the startup. And so I wasn't going to leave for anything. It had to be a good opportunity. I applied to only Google. So I did not really diversify my risk or my eggs in my basket. I put them all into Google. It's kind of how I date, too. <laughs> and uh, 
The interesting well, well, but but you're maybe you were a monogamous diversifier. <laughs> so maybe if did if Google hadn't said yes, maybe you would have applied to Later. I don't know, yeah, exactly, some other company, exactly. Uber. But I tend to get very focused, and when something in my gut it feels like the right move, I just focus really on that. And so after four months of interviewing at Google, one of the things I had to do because I was so I was managing AdWords accounts at the startup, and I applied for a role on the AdWords training team at Google. I knew I used to get hives when I was public speaking, but I also knew I wanted to be an author someday. And this would help me. It was like immersion therapy to get me better at being in front of a room. And so I had to give a mock presentation. I had to learn Google Earth and give a mock presentation to the whole training team, 15 people, teaching them how to use Google Earth as if they were real estate brokers. Mm. And in a 45-minute presentation, one little thing I did, I was showing them how to add a listing to Google Earth, and I added a snippet of code to add an image. And I just casually added it in because I used to do web development tutoring in college for small business owners to make extra money. And so um, I had no idea at the time, but after I started and I, I got the job, and after I started, they said, when we saw you write that line of code, we knew you were our person. Because so wait, you, you wrote were, the one, line green. of code like on the fly? Like yeah, were, just, you know, where image. Where was the code? It was an image source. Like okay. image source equals, and I put okay. in, a, I think it was one of my dad. My dad's an architect. Put in one of his listings at the time. And so I just hard-coded it, essentially. I didn't, there was yeah. no like file, insert image. Yeah. And uh, it turns out, and I was very green. I was very nervous. I was shaking. My voice was shaking. I, it was you know, it was okay, but I was very entry level. I was twenty one at the time. So, so you were kind of pivoting from. This is like a very early pivot in your life. You were kind of yeah, the um, first making the a first, change well, from the second big one. startup to Google. And would you say like kind of the the takeaway from that is make almost an inventory of your skills. So you you had software. You understood Google very well because you were managing the Google AdWords team. You understood startup culture, which Google probably still somewhat had. I mean, even though they were a giant at that point, they always sort of had that startup culture. Uh, then you had to learn some new skills like presentation skills. Uh, so you sort of had to make an inventory of those. And then kind of that together allowed you to not quite seamlessly, you were scared, but that allowed you to do a pivot. It wasn't like, right. okay, now I'm going to be a fireman. And then you just jump on a fire truck. Like, there's this whole thing that has to happen to do well, a pivot. We just recorded a po James's podcast for his show that will also come out today. And I love James's podcast. So everyone go listen to that, too. It's the James Altucher show. But he brought up Stephen Johnson about the adjacent possible. What is interesting to me, so to just cap that story, turns out the training team needed a global training website. And that was not in the job description. And I had no idea that that stupid little line of code was part of the thing that got me hired. So I think what's interesting is that when you do diversify your skill set, you won't always know how they're going to combine and how even I would never have even listed web development, HTML, CSS as a trait to get this training team job. I thought it was totally irrelevant. How would I have known they needed a global training website? So it was very interesting that just by naturally combining multiple things, it ended up being the thing that got me the job. But that's why often, um, we were talking about serendipity earlier, that's why often you kind of have to try several things because you don't know where the sort of chance lightning is going to strike where this combination of skills will suddenly flourish into something that works. That's why when people come to my website and they say, oh, I love your, your site or 
something like that. And what they don't always realize is this has been 10 years of a thousand tiny iterations. It, none of us come out the gate and just launch the most perfect blog with all these readers. And it's not like that. For me, it's, it's just been testing the tiniest things over and over and over. And I think if you're experimenting and doing these really small pilots, as I call them in the book, within fields you enjoy, that's half the fun. So, so I want I want to get more into what what an experiment is and what a pilot is. But tell me more about Google. Like, did did you have first off? Did you have to take one of those tests, those famous Google no, tests? No, think I would have failed that. I would have failed that. Like, how I, many mar? How many yeah. jelly beans are in this big container? Even taking the SATs was not my strength. Standardized tests were never my thing. Did you finish U- UCLA? Yes, I took classes at Stanford while working at the startup, and then I went back for one quarter to graduate with my class. Okay. And that was an interesting moment because most of my friends, I kind of lost touch with my college friends. And to this day, Google almost feels like my college experience, and I'm in touch with many more people from my five years. I spent two and a half years at UCLA, five and a half years at Google, and Google feels like my alma mater. And I learned so much. So, okay, so tell us about Google. What's that like? It's really intense. I mean, everybody's friendly. Everyone's googly, as they say. But if you consider how strict Google's hiring parameters are, and then you put, at the time I worked there, 35,000 of them together in the same company, there's no way that the pace isn't going to be unrelenting, which it really was. And for so many of us, that's what made it exciting. But it was very challenging not to burn out. I just, and, it, and I don't say that it's Google's fault. You know, it's like I take responsibility for that. But there's just uh, such it, the, the campus always seemed really fun and calm. But anytime guests would come, they're also like, yeah, I can tell it's intense here. <laughs> you know, even though there's people playing volleyball. Like what was and, the most intense thing that happened to you there? Like what was something where you felt like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this or I, I can't do this? The the Now I call them call walls where if I have meetings back to back all day, there were there was a period of time where I'd become a manager. 24. I just had meetings all day, every day, to the point where my friend Julie and I had to throw email parties on Sunday afternoon. We would eat pumpkin seeds, red wine, chocolate, and watch Say Yes to the Dress and try and go get four hours of email done together. It was the only way we could stomach getting caught up. And that would only That's get us disgusting. caught That's disgusting. You didn't at least watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? I don't even know if that was Say out Say Yes then. to the Dress? Ugh. Duh, James, it's such a great show. Come on. I've seen it. And so, I know what kind of show that is. And yeah, so so having to like work on Sunday and then have meetings all day, every day. Were the meetings just, useful? Like what happened in a meeting? It's like a did, very, did things get done? It's a very collaborative environment. Nothing is autonomous, really. I mean, you have some autonomy in terms of getting projects going and off the ground, but so much of it is around consensus. And so many of them were productive, but at a certain point I did question, what is, why am I, I, I felt like, I was probably working in my zone of genius about 30% of the time. Well, you alluded earlier to the tension between you and your mom about when you should quit Google. Like what, obviously an external pivot that happens where you change a career or a business changes the direction is usually preceded by an internal tension. Um, So what what kind of, uh, and this tension was big enough for you that you and your, your mom didn't even agree on what you should do. Like what was the tension that caused you to hit some sort of plateau at Google, the best company in the world, where you said, I have to get out of here. Well, two and a half years in, I hit that, if not two years in. And I know we talked on your show about your pivots are kind of every two years also. I was really unhappy, and I'd become a manager. I had to tell several of my 
former friends now direct reports that they had to go find other jobs within the company or leave. Why is that? And that was devastating because there was a big reorg. Mm. It was 2008 around then. And that was really devastating to me. And also at the time when I started at Google, I worked under Sheryl Sandberg's organization and I was not her direct report by any means. Like, can you call her up on the phone and say, hey, Definitely not. No. (laughs) But, um. The point is, when I had hit that wall and I felt so awful and I I just felt sick to my stomach and I would cry at work, which is so embarrassing. And I was 24 and, and going through all this. And I kind of looked to Cheryl, which we all who, who we all really admired. And I had this realization, I don't want to be her. I don't want to keep climbing the ranks of management. I don't want to have all these one-on-ones and performance reviews. And yes, I love coaching people. But I don't necessarily love managing them, nor do I want to be CEO of some giant company someday the way that I thought that I did. Well, let me ask you a question. Why not? Like, obviously, Cheryl has achieved much career success and satisfaction. Like, she's helped run Google. She runs Facebook. She's a multi-billionaire. I mean, obviously, everybody has unfortunate things that happen in their lives, and she has as well. But she's a best-selling author. She's she's had so many great, significant uh, accomplishments. Uh, why not strive to be exactly like her? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. For me, I think for some reason, a more quiet existence fits me better. And a more how do you individual. recognize that in yourself at 24? I just didn't want the treadmill of stress and expectations and responsibility. That all felt very heavy to me. Whereas when I looked at what I was doing on the side of building this new blog, Life After College, that was really joyful. and. I, I I guess uh, I don't know. Even now, I'm a solopreneur, and I have no ambition to build a 100-person business someday. That's just not—it doesn't feel like the day-to-day tasks that I really enjoy. I love a lot of quiet time. I love being lean. I like being able to go work from anywhere whenever I feel like it and not be tied down to a location or to people. I mean, in this really weird way, I don't know if you get this a lot, a lot of people will sometimes pitch me. Let's partner on something. Let's create this. Let's do an event together. Let's do a retreat. And I just cringe. I'm like, I don't want to work with you. I I just want to work on my own and just have the total freedom and flexibility. And I know that African proverb, (laughs) those who go alone go fast. Those who go together go far. And I'm down to do some, you know, things like this where we're kind of collaborating. Yeah, but I don't. I don't want to like co-start a business with anyone. It just it doesn't feel right to me. So you were hitting this. So, so it sounds like two things that's relating to, to the, the pivot style in your book. And, and this is on individuals, but also we'll talk about for companies, but for individuals, uh, there was some, again, some depression that was happening. Oh, some, yeah. I just was like how you felt depressed. at your startup, just like how you probably felt at UCLA before you joined the startup. So you, some, some sort of physical feeling of unhappiness. And let's also add physically. I was 20 pounds heavier than I am now, and I had a thyroid problem. I had an overactive thyroid. So my body was also not thrilled with what was going on. I think people are more and more, science is connecting the dots, that how you feel internally is going to reflect how you feel and externally, whether sick or healthy and so on. So, So this was happening to you. And at the same time, it wasn't just that. You also had something, and you used the word joy, which is a great word. You also had something you were doing that was joyful at the same time. So what was that? Blogging. And you know the funny thing? So I, at the time, I thought, oh, I got to go to business school. That's what all the managers are doing. And I was interviewing, informal interviews with managers asking where they went, 
James, I ordered five MBA books, like how to take the GMAT and get into business school. Oh my God, that's to so boring. To this day, I haven't touched them. When they arrived, I shunned them to a corner. I, I love books more than anyone, but I couldn't touch them. That's so, the so same again, way like, I feel phys- about all the marketing books that land on my shelves right now. It's so interesting because, <laughs> because physically then your body was telling you yes. almost the direction so, of the pivot. Here's the funny thing. So, and pivots are very physical. That The original definition yeah. is... You're facing one way, and now your body's going to face another way. Absolutely. The funny thing was I had the initial idea to create life after college because I thought, well, if I want to get into business school, I should start something. I should show I'm enterprising. And I was also practicing how to hard code a website from scratch using only CSS, no tables. And that was the, that was the cool thing at the time. And so I didn't start life after college for these huge ambitions. I mean, yes, I did want to help other people. I wanted to make their after college experience more efficient than mine was, which I felt was a little floundering. And uh, but I also wanted to practice HTML, which we talked about, and I wanted to maybe get into business school. The funny thing is that two years later, once I wrote the book and got a book deal but for, for life after college, yeah. It totally circumvented the need for business school because then all of a sudden I was an author and a speaker and doing all the things that I wanted without having to fork over 150K. So it's so fascinating because I think people think, oh, if I don't uh, go from Google to Facebook, my life's over. Or if I don't go get this one thing, it's I, I have no purpose in life. But you were like, uh, again, you as you describe in the book, you were doing these small experiments, these small pilots. So you were like, okay, you were at Google, you, you were feeling that plateau, which suggests a pivot is on the way, and you figured, okay, maybe business school, but first let's do this blog, the blog got popular, oh, maybe it could be a book deal, oh, oh, got to be a popular book, now uh, it could be a, a speaker, consultant, so all these things started happening. It wasn't necessarily your purpose in life, because you're not doing those things now, for instance, but it was a way to pivot into something where you, from something where you previously had joy, then you had depression, now you found a new joy, and it was along, it, it was by accident, because you, you thought you were going to pivot into business school. Right, and I ended up pivoting internally to the career development team. So I did, I talk in the book about unrealized gains and diminishing returns, that if you leave a thing too early, you might leave unrealized gains on the table, and in my case, I absolutely would have, because I ended up doing creating a global coaching program at Google that was really helpful to me now. It's on the front of the book cover. But uh, one thing that's important is I always... What, what's a global coaching team uh, at I, Google? I used what does to, that mean? Yeah, I would train managers and directors all over the world coaching skills so that with 10% of their role, they could facilitate dropping coaching sessions for any Googler. So it was part of my vision with my friend Becky. I wanted coaching to be as easy for people to sign up for as a massage. And at the time, it was only available to executives or people who took leadership programs. What's an example of coaching? I don't understand. Just you could have a neutral person to come talk to either about a challenging situation or just what you're interested in, or maybe you're at your own plateau or pivot point. And instead of having to only talk to your manager, there could be this other person in the company that you could informally talk with so google has these coaches that are kind of like these third Mm -hmm. uh you know kind of indirect people you could talk to as opposed to just that your direct manager because i had the experience of getting coached and it was so transformative and that's what kicked all of this off and my common thread is i always enjoyed expressing when i was 10 i started a family newspaper called the monthly dig up and i would write about technology trends i would do interviews and that was also about synthesizing information and then sharing it so that started young and i knew i always liked being helpful and kind of you know even tech trends i've always enjoyed but yeah how it has manifested has been different over the years and uh 
Yeah, and then and then leaving. I mean, let me just say, I talk. We talked on your show about pivot runway and finances. And the topic of business school, I had about six months savings in the bank when I left. Let's say twenty. Let's say twenty five thousand cash, and then I had a car, red velvet, my Prius, of course, because the Bay Area. But um, I wiped that out. I've cleaned that out in the last five years. Like that is gone. And you, everyone will read about that in the book. That's what sparked the pivot method was trying to figure out how to dig myself out of that hole. And uh, but I'll say when I look back, okay, so I spent twenty five grand on the last five years to make it to today, where I'm the happiest and healthiest I've ever felt. And instead of spending one hundred and fifty grand to go to business school, so I still think that it's like the cheapest, smartest decision that I could have made, even though it was very stressful to lose that money. When I put it in the context of not going to business school, it all shakes out. Well, okay, so so you you have the book out. Um, you're starting to get speaking opportunities. Is this, did you think to yourself, wow, this is going to be my career or like, what's the next pivot that happened? I had taken a sabbatical March, 2011, when the book came out and I totally agonized about whether I should go back. I did not take the sabbatical thinking, yeah, I'm going to peace out in three months. This is going to be great. In fact, I wish I had known because I spent money as if I was still working at Google on those three months. I went to South by Southwest. I probably dropped 2500 on the hotel because it's insane there, the hotel cost. I mean, that's that's so stupid. Like, if I knew I was going to quit three months later, point being, I really didn't know until the last minute. And then I finally decided, even to 27, uh, you know, I had, I I bought a condo. I had a car. I had the job. I had become a manager. And all that was missing was like insert husband and 2.5 kids. And all of a sudden, I just realized I do not want that. I do not. That is not for me. And yet up till that point, I felt so much pressure. I just felt that's what you do. These are all the boxes that you check toward the American dream. And when I realized I rented out my condo, I sold my car. I did that cliche of packing two suitcases and moving to New York. But I've never felt so alive. and. I live in this small studio apartment, but I love it so much. People would say it's expensive. To me, it's cheap for how much I love the city and how much I get out of being here. So essentially, at that time, I just thought, you know what? I'm willing to spend every dollar of my savings. And in six months, if I haven't earned a dime, fine, I'll go find another job. There was finally that moment where I was willing to try and lose what I had. Well, I think it's an important point that the six months is sort of a magic number. I think if you're young, single... Um, and you're pivoting to new career, uh, and you're a little unsure how much money you need, I do think six months is a fair amount of runway to have. Uh, and with some idea that you could potentially make more, like you were speaking to, right. you could probably have gotten another book deal if you had really worked at it, worked for that in that direction. And the thing is, I, I because once, I think once someone, once you do make these big, in the book I call it the launch, this is the fourth stage, and once you make your big launch decision, for me, what was such a relief was at Google, I used to have 20 OKRs, objectives and key results that I was responsible for every quarter, and if not more. And it was so much to juggle 20. and think about. Yeah, it was this huge like, list what's an that example? I, could, I could never even remember. Oh, it might be, you know, increased career guru session attendance from 35 <laughs> per month to 135. You know, it could be something like that. Launch career guru in Dublin and Korea. So it did, things like that, but sometimes they were increasing metrics here, or comms plans. Point is, when I left, I was so relieved. My only OKR was pay the rent, and all of a sudden, I felt so free, and I actually felt so focused. Like, oh my goodness, now I have all month and all day, every day, to meet this goal. And of course, I think once once you're 
meeting but your you basic had, you, expenses. It was good to know that you had the six months runway yeah, in the bank. And, the, and I didn't need it. For the first, for, from month one, I started earning money because I could redirect all my creative energy to that. Whereas, uh, and I think, you know, it's not just about the money and certainly not for me. But once the basic ex, uh, needs are being met, then I turn toward meaning and impact. But in the beginning, I just needed to know, okay, I can support myself. And I, it was a roller coaster. I kind of came to my own daily practice, which you talk about in Choose Yourself, because I was waking up with such mood swings every day and feeling so lazy and inconsistent. And that I realized my body is my business. If I don't treat my body, I'm my only employee now. Right, because if you're, if you're sick, you can't pivot. It's the bottom no. line. Well, well, you, and you if you're say- self-employed and you're suddenly like, hungover, tired, or eating too much sugar, and you're at 50%, well, then so is the business. Right. That just seemed like bad business to me. So, so, and, and also everybody, look, it's a dream thing to be able to be your own boss. And so there's a lot of competition for dream jobs, obviously. So you can't be at 50%. You have to be as close to 100% as possible. But you say the fourth stage is launch. Tell me about the first three stages. The first three, and that's really what you can repeat as many times as needed to get to the launch. And the first three, really, it came to me of thinking like a basketball player that when they stop dribbling, they plant. They have one foot grounded. It's not moving. And so that's this is like you at so Google still. Important. It's, it's, the plant foot is about what's already working. What are your strengths? And also, what do you, what's your vision? What do you want a year from now? These are all your known variables. Once you're rooted in that, instead of ignoring all those assets under your belt, then the pivot foot can scan for opportunities. So the basketball player can look around the court looking for where to pass the ball. And then pilot is the third stage. And that's passing the ball around. Where's your best shot? That's testing, small experiments. Google, Silicon Valley, it's all about lean, launch and iterate, get scrappy, test a lot of things. What, what's, some, what's some other examples of experiments that both individuals and companies can do? Well, career pilots... Things like starting a blog, taking classes. I, I tell people, think of your career like a smartphone, and it's up to you to download apps for things that you want. So, James, I know you just took a DJing class. Yeah, you did a stand-up a night. These yeah. are pilots. Yeah, yeah, because you're not quitting all your other income streams and just going full-time into DJing. Definitely that would be. not. <laughs> Come to my next show at... Right. Or stand-up. And yet, these are things that you really are curious about and compelled by and... And they so fit this is something that should be ongoing. Like people should Absolutely. be doing this all the time. These types of things. So what are some other examples? So so apps, courses, maybe little businesses they could start exactly. or websites they could build. Skill building. If someone works at a company, ten or twenty percent projects. And I think there's a myth that at Google, all of us had twenty percent of our time every week to do whatever the hell we wanted. Not at all. In fact, most of the time it was a ten percent project that you pitched to the man, your manager, and then and then that was added to your current job. So it was one hundred and ten percent that these employees were now putting in. But that's how Career Guru started, and it's now a global program that's cited when Google is listed as top one hundred companies to work for. And so it started as a ten percent project that my friend and I were willing to go above and beyond on, and anyone can pitch that at their companies. So it doesn't just mean, and I don't, I'm not someone that says, oh, everybody should be an entrepreneur. Even running your own business, you and I talk for your show, you've got to kind of pilot new areas and new income streams. And that's to stay fresh and also to stay ahead of the curve and also to stay interested. So when you first, okay, so you ended up in New York after the Life After College book and speaking and so on. What was your next, how did you find the, what was your next kind of plateau and then um, plant and then pivot, and then, you know, experiment and launch. I hit a total, it was a pivot point, but it felt like a crisis. And by the way, 
I felt like there must be something wrong with me because every two years I feel like I'm having a midlife or quarter life crisis. What is wrong with me? Am and I destined I can to tell be you, unhappy? I mean, like, how old are you right now? 32. Okay, so I'm 48, and I can tell you it never stops. Exactly, At least, yeah. I don't think it ever stops. Like, every two years, almost every year sometimes in some cases, but definitely every definitely every five years, massive pivot. Every two years, mini pivot. Every one year, stuff happens. And that was news to me because I thought, what the hell is wrong with me? I'm not even happy at Google, the Disneyland of companies where everyone wants to work. Am I destined to be unhappy forever? And then I quit and I had been, you know, kind of launching life after college. And about a year and a half in, I realized I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to talk about life after college because I was 28, 29. And I just, I had moved on past the topic of life after college. And yet I couldn't see in front of me. But how do you, like, like, given that you know that your entire audience that you had built up, that you spent years building up was for that life after college. Uh, and you knew the people, the only reason people were writing to you for help and for this and for that was because of this. How do you say, I'm going to turn my back or I'm going to pivot away from that audience that loves me? Well, it was, it was so hard. I had to look at what they were coming. I, d- I didn't know how to do that. And I felt like, yeah, I felt really, um, I'd become known as the girl who left things. Whenever I worked at Google, people, if I, if I met them at a networking event or a bar or something, they would say, what's the food like? And all of a sudden I would just disappear as soon as they knew that it was no longer about me. And after I left, everyone wanted to talk about leaving Google. And so once again, I'm like, well, who am I? What do I have to add to the world? I was very worried that when I, I used to help run the authors at Google program, and I was worried that when I left, people like you would not want to be my friend, that I would lose all the value, all the reason that people I admired had to connect with me and that I would like vanish into internet nothingness of just not being an interesting person. This was a big fear that I had. Well, was it, was it even partially true? I mean, it might have been partially true. It was definitely People true. People are not going to return your calls as much <laughs> if you're not at Google. It was definitely true that while I worked there, I Everybody would sometimes your see a name I recognized in my email and I would get so excited and then I would open the email and it was course. It was not that they wanted me. They wanted some connection and uh i I believe in earning respect as well so part of it was i wanted to find something that the the use of the world of people would want to connect with me around and i felt life after college i created a 15 tab book marketing spreadsheet that many authors been downloaded like eight thousand times so many authors have used it and written to me that felt really good to be able to create value for my peers and so as i i stopped coaching i stopped I really slowed down all my income streams, which I wouldn't recommend. This is my big mistake that that led to my aha moment. But um, it got to the point where I had to move apartments. My rent doubled overnight. My business income did not. And all of a sudden, I was not going to be able to pay the rent in two weeks. And I felt horrible. I wondered if I was delusional. Like, am I an idiot to think that I could have done this whole entrepreneurial thing? Is the jig up? And the reason for that was... I didn't know what was next, and I didn't know how to figure that out. And so it was not until this moment where so convinced that I was not ready to leave New York or quit my business, I just said, I have to look at what's working. I have to build from what's already here, which included life after college stuff. I cannot just ignore it. And that's, that's where the basketball player thing came to me, and, and I started so, doubling so what, down on what was already working, and I ended up that ended up that year being the most profitable year ever in my business. Well, what experiments did you start doing? So, so you, so I you, called you, all my previous coaching clients. So one of the things I realized, 
I've been working with coaching clients independently for three years at that point. These are people I love. These are people who love me. We have a great relationship. They hired me at one time. So I actually called all of them and said, I want to build something for you. Here are these ideas. And by the way, I structured these as 30-30 calls, which means, hey, are you willing to jump on the phone? I'd love your feedback for 30 minutes on something I'm cooking up. And then I'm happy to help you brainstorm anything you want for 30 minutes. That's how I like to do this kind of thing. So it's a two-way favor right from the get-go. That's a great way to structure it. And by going back to all them, I got their feedback and input. I crafted a program that I called Brilliant Sparter. It was kind of a community meets coaching. And and that's got the rent paid for one more month. And then that bought me more time. To so how, how did it get the rent like paid it. for one more month? Like what happened? Because enough people signed up to just cover my monthly net. And but again, my monthly net was now twice what it had been for the previous two years. So I had to think bigger. And so, so you were selling these, these 30, 30 phone calls? No, those were just to do research okay. in, in design thinking. They call it empathy interviews to understand this group of people that I already knew I loved working with. And so when I created the coaching program, Brilliant Sparter, and wrote to them to launch it, they already were familiar. And so many of them signed up. And also because I'd built it with their feedback in mind. Right. And so, so out of those, what happened? So then that got me, that started paying the bills and I could start to exhale. And then I started doubling down on speaking and I did things like rebuilding my speaking reel or how do you get a, how do you get speaking my websites. Gigs? I think a lot of it is for me, it's incoming because I'm not, I'm not a salesperson. I don't really go proactively pitch myself, but thought leadership. One of, one of the reasons I was struggling so much during this time was I really value original thinking and big ideas. And I didn't feel I had one. But the irony of it is that going through this experience and having to wrestle my way out of it because there, there was no other choice is what then created Pivot. And now here we are three years later. And so I, I think I'm one of those people that my life experiences lead to the books. <laughs> well, so. well, it's interesting because I always sort of feel you can't write, you don't write the book you know, you write the book you need. Exactly. So like when I wrote uh, The Power of No, it's not like I was such an expert at saying no. It was that I needed to learn how to say no. And in that discovery process, you write the book. So you going through this process of pivoting over and over again in your personal career and finding greater and greater success throughout was sort of the, that, that becomes the book that pro- processes art really. Yes. So, so, so what are the, so, so you talked about some of the key components of, you know, from, from kind of uh, planting to launch the, the, the key stages in, in pivots. What are the other things people need to kind of have in their arsenal to, to pivot? Having marketable skills is so important. I mean, and when, when I say marketable, meaning do other people want this thing from you? And I think that it, it requires us all to become futurists a little bit. It's hard for anyone to predict the future. I mean, no one really can. But to look ahead and say, what can I get good at? What will people want from me? How can I add value? And I think that's an important question to be asking a lot. I know you're starting a VR project, like hedge, hedge fund? Uh, like, a, like a venture capital fund. Yeah, exactly. But, but let me ask you this. Let's yeah. take a harder example than me. Um, a lot of women, after they raise children and maybe a divorce happens, who knows? Um, and I'm making these stories up, but this is a common demographic. They find themselves in a career workforce that has changed completely since they were last in the workforce. They don't even know what it means to pivot or to or what marketable skills are necessary for them. What can they do um, to pivot? They haven't been working for years. 
trying to figure out what their skills are. What, what would you say to someone like that? Well, that's a great example of, I, I do not think that any person is starting from scratch. It's so important to look at one's existing strengths, even if they haven't been in the workforce t- in a technical sense. What have they been doing? What do they most enjoy? What are their interests? What do people come to them for advice on? And what do they want? Not everybody wants to go back into the workforce. In some cases, they just want a little extra income, or some might need a full-time job. Some may want to go right back into corporate. And so parsing out what those known variables are, then I think you're more focused in your scanning about ways to get there. And so for some, that may be getting new skills. And for others, it may just be creatively coming up with a business. So I've worked with a lot of coaching clients who are moms. One of, one of them, she does career coaching and interview coaching. And she said she wants to lean sideways. You know, she has no idea, no desire to go back into corporate, but she also does love working. And so she wants to now pivot from coaching grad students at UCLA to coaching moms on exactly this topic. That's it. So, so what will she do? Well, she'll help moms figure out how to get more skills. Exactly. Kind of like you said, the the service she might've needed two Hmm. years ago. I see. So that's interesting. So, okay, so what are some other examples of what are the things we need? What are the tools we need to to have a successful pivot? Well, I think one of them is also to realize that what what you and I just said that I think right now a lot of people, there's a lot of shame and blame around hitting career plateaus. And we certainly throw it all at millennials. Like, oh, they're so entitled, these job hoppers. And certainly in some cases they are. But I think one of the biggest things about a pivot is not to take it personally. And that's why I called this book what it is. I think it's critical, not taking it personally. Yeah, I wanted a term that was gender neutral and judgment neutral. Pivot is a continuous process. And so the thing to realize, I think what I did for far too long was beat myself up. Like, I'm such an idiot. Am I delusional? Am I not cut out for entrepreneurship? What's wrong with me? Why don't I have anything interesting to say? And I took it so personally that I was in this position. And I think I wasted a lot of time on that instead of just piloting and experimenting. Well, um, you know. I don't know. Do you take your reinventions personally or did you used to? I still do. Yeah, it's hard. Because yeah. you think to yourself. Why am I hitting this plateau? Is it the plateau because I'm bad? Is it because yeah, I don't know? Yeah, we want to be self-aware. I want to take responsibility. And there's uncertainty, too. Like, what am I going to do next? Like, a pivot always yeah. involves, like, what's going to happen next? So I think there's a psychology to it. But I think you mentioned earlier when we were talking um, the three E's, and I think that yes. helps to find, you know, everybody's sort of out there saying, well, what's my purpose in life? And I don't know if there's any one purpose in life. Like, you went from, you know, the the polling startup to Google to several things within Google, the life after college, to the coaching, to this book writing. So there's no one purpose. We kind of go from joy to joy in some sense. So what are the three E's that kind of help you figure out which direction is the right place to plant? Well, sure. I call that project-based purpose in the book, which is that you don't have to know for your whole life. I happen to have a strong sense that my purpose for being on this earth is helping as many people as possible, being as helpful as possible to as many people as possible. That's why I exist. It's why I wake up every day that anything else that happens in my life is nice to have compared to that. Not everybody has that feeling about something. So project-based purpose is, if I'm going to work on this project or take this job for the next two years, why? That's all you have to know. You don't have to know any purpose beyond that. And so that, I think, gives people a sense of relief. You can just ask yourself, what's my project-based purpose for this next phase? 
for you for DJing, for stand up, for any of those projects? So like, what's an example of a project based purpose? Like for me, like let's say I wanted to do, let's say I wanted to drop everything and at least experiment with stand up. I'm not going to drop yes. everything, but I'm going to experiment. Well, what's a project based? You purpose? tell me. Like two years from now, what's what would you hope to have happened by investing in stand up? I guess that I would have a, a one hour set of jokes that people would laugh at and I was regularly like let's say at least once a week or more performing. And what would that get you? Probably nothing. <laughs> so that would be just for <laughs> but fun. But if you got better, no but I think it might if you got better at stand up and you're regularly performing and you wrote jokes that made people laugh. Yeah, what maybe, would be possible in your I life? guess then I could my writing would be different like I could write more humorously. I could write for a show me a comedy show. I don't know. I'd have to really think about it, but uh but I could see how that Building those marketable skills, right. you know, because their skills are performance of skills and writing jokes that, that that could transform into something. Totally. And you do podcasting, you do writing. I can't see it not helping any of these activities that you do. And right. then also, merging with those activities yeah, to create something new. If nothing else, networking with the people that you really love and respect, because I think you love stand up comedians and you yeah. watch it for fun before you do things like this podcast recording session. And so I think so much, some of project based purpose, I always th- I talk about optimizing for revenue and joy. Yes, it's nice when we can make money, but it's also nice when we can really enjoy it. So well, well, ask well, the question. Get, get to that. Tell me the three E's. Okay. Oh, yeah, the three E's. A good pilot or experiment will test the three E's. One, do I enjoy this? Two, can I become an expert expert at it? And do I want to? That's a really important one because yes. a lot of times you can't. Like, <laughs> right. Like I can, I can appreciate basketball, to use that example. I could appreciate it, but I'm never going to be a pro basketball player. But that might suggest then, well, maybe I can be a writer about basketball. So you start to then kind of slice what are the different skills within the umbrella of basketball. So expertise is on at a glance, it seems like a yes, no, or can you be an expert right. or not? But then you could slice it and I could can find areas within basketball where I can be an expert. Right. Well, for example, I had to learn the hard way that I love coding. I love HTML and CSS and the technical side of building websites. I'm terrible at design. I had no, even when I was doing the tutoring and someone asked me to build a site, I hit such a wall. My brain just does not think in terms of beautiful visual design, period. I I really am convinced no matter how much I try, it's not how my brain works. And so I use my web dev skills now to kind of tweak my blogs and stuff, but I always have to hire someone when it comes to the big brand strategy. And so that's an example of yeah, I enjoy web design in a certain regards, but I could never become an expert at it because of that limitation, I would say. So again, it's just a matter of taking inventory of your skills and seeing which ones you have, which ones you can learn, which ones you simply yeah. don't have. But at the same time, not being afraid of saying, no, I don't have these skills. Like, I'm never going to be a web designer, right. but I can slice it in different ways. Like, I could help people find web designers or I can... um like, you know, guide people on functionality of what should be on the front page of their, their yeah. website. I, I'm fascinated by AI and VR and mixed reality, too. And I want to think about, can I create some kind of career bot? You know, so I, like I'm, I do turn my attention that way where maybe I don't become a full-time programmer, but I create projects in that space. And so then the, the third E, just so we get it out, is expansion. Is there more room in the market where that came from? And I don't think we always know that. I mean, I, I spent... A few years and about $10,000 building a meditation app. 
And in hindsight, I learned a lot. It was like a, you know, 10 grand uh, MBA course in app building. But what were we thinking? I mean, there's so many meditation apps that are venture funded and blew us out of the water. And I realized in hindsight, I was never going to, it was never going to be my strength to manage the details of app development and maintenance. You know, all this reminds me of, uh, do you know who Matt Berry is? Uh, So he's, um, he's the fantasy sports anchor at ESPN. Uh, which is like uh, I don't, I didn't even know I don't even really know what fantasy sports is and to think that they have a whole hanger for it but he's great at what he does and but he was a screenwriter a movie writer in Hollywood making a ton of money he was writing successful movies and decided at some point you know I just don't like this anymore he was getting unhappy he was having that plateau at, that you discussed and what he really enjoyed we're gonna get to the three E's he really enjoyed uh, he was already a writer and he really enjoyed fantasy sports. Uh, he knew he could, he could be an expert at writing about fantasy sports. So he dropped everything and he started making a hundred dollars per blog post writing about fantasy sports. He had a little bit of money in the, in the bank and there was, it was a wide open field. There were no blogs uh, or there were certainly there were no TV anchors focused on fantasy sports and he became the first and he's even written a book on it. Now, when I walk into a restaurant with him, people are coming up to him saying, wow. hey, thank you for everything you do on ESPN or your picks or this or that. And so That's it became amazing. like this a huge pivot using the three E's you describe. That is so interesting. Thank you for that great example. I'm curious, do you ever feel like you're too early to the market? Because like, like testing that third piece expansion is sometimes tricky. Sometimes hard to know. I know you've started many different businesses. Yeah, all the time. And I think that's why having small um pilot programs or experiments helps like when do you know when to give up on a pilot yes well actually you (laughs) i'm curious to know your thoughts and then i'll share mine too how do you know because sometimes all the cliches oh it's darkest before the dawn that's what that's what killed me during my as you would call it reinvention for me this this moment in 2013 was like how do i know when to call it i didn't want to be delusional about um staying past my due i think the first thing you just said there is is the first thing is you always have to kind of do a double check every single day, every single hour if you're yeah. being delusional. Gut because, instincts are so key here. But but people but the problem is the gut will always tell you you're not being delusional because <laughs> there's sort of this sunken cost fallacy like, oh, you're doing this, Jenny, so it must be correct. Otherwise, why would you be doing it? Your brain wants to protect you. So you always have to do a double check on that gut to, to probably to build a better gut instinct. But so you have to make sure you're not delusional then you have to decide am i dealing with uh that plateau that happens in other pivots or am i uh fearing failure so you have Mm -hmm. to kind of know is this a fear of failure feeling or am i really hitting a plateau and that you kind of only know through experience you have to basically pivot a lot which you will over a course of here's what people don't realize when you're 22 25 30 you're going to try things and some of them are going to fail. And you want to minimize the effect on your life of those failures. So uh, you want to make sure that, uh, you know, you get, you get experience with lots of these little, you know, one-year, two-year experiments or, or smaller so that you build up that gut of determining, is this fear of failure that I'm feeling or is this that plateau feeling? Because then you know when to go on. There's, and you only get that through experience. Yes, yes. And once I started to realize that, at least for me, my sort of pivot cycle time is every few years. And even right now, I'm pivoting within my business. It's not like I'm quitting and going and doing something totally different. But every few years, I am pivoting. And when I recognize that, I get much more resourceful quicker. 
So here's an example. My book was supposed to come out in March of this year. And what? It's September? It's September 6th today. I know. And when my editor first told me we were behind schedule and we weren't going to hit it, I cried. And for 24 hours, I was so upset. And I thought, uh, you know, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to earn income for those extra six months? I was relying on this March 2016 launch. I've already stretched so far trying to make the last few years work because there's less incoming interest because all my best ideas are in the computer. And it was fear, exactly as you just talked about. Right away. Then I realized, ha, 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 joke's on me. Once you write a book about something, you will get tested on it. It's like the final exam or a midterm because there's many of them. And I realized, oh, I need to pivot method this. I need to look at what's working, double down on that and and get my business right before the launch. I realized that I was treating my book like a child. It was entering a child beauty pageant when the March launch, like you need to win this launch or else we're not going to survive in business. And I realized, no, that's the wrong thing. I needed to build the structure of my business. Now, James, this book could not have come out a day sooner. So what'd you do? How'd you survive? What what did you, how'd you build your business the past few months? I pivoted the shit out of it. (laughs) What I'm saying is like, I use this method exactly to a T, exactly as I wrote in the book. And I was very satisfied because it helped me turn things around, both my mindset and, and the income. Immediately. What so did you what I did. Do? Okay. So I created momentum. This well, I had already launched momentum, this private community for side hustlers and solopreneurs. I I'm trying to think what I did exactly in March. Um oh, I started building a whole bunch of programs. I started conceptualizing and now launched a, a group of pivot coaches so that when the book is launching now, that when I'm on the road, there are six amazing, incredible people who can do pivot jumpstart coaching sessions, kind of like what I used to do at Google. I started building a workshop in a box for companies so they could run a pivot conversation in their organization. And did These you are things sell that to the, the companies? Like, did you, were you it's, able to get clients? It's ready now. So part of, part of what I did was I took on more coaching clients than maybe would have been in my ideal state. How'd you get them? Um, usually, for me, I'm pretty fortunate that people come to me. So I was just more kind of like generous of how many people I was taking on. and and um, But then I have to say, I don't know if you feel this, sometimes energetically. First of all, if I energetically don't have the capacity or the mental space for more business, it stops coming, speaking gigs or coaching clients. But then secondly, there was a point where I thought I had four or five new clients and they all dropped at the same time. And I intentionally left my schedule open and I felt like this is such a critical time. There's so much I want to be building behind the scenes that I let myself really get low financially, whereas two years ago I would have panicked. This time around, it felt very intentional. And I do think that there's a certain amount of going with the flow when you're in business of sometimes are more behind the scenes. And then, you, and for me, I'm preparing. And the launch is a bet. This is, this is a, a risk I took of investing three years in this and hoping that it helps take my business to the next level and makes a big impact and reaches a lot of people. At this point, though, there's no way I can control those things beyond what I've already done. So at, at a certain point, we talked about serendipity at the start. So a little serendipity and a little magic are going to have to come into play. And also, there's there's something, um, there's the anticlimactic moment. Like, today's the book launch. <laughs> right. It's almost like kind of the eye of the hurricane in that nothing, you're going to feel like, oh, my God, I'm in the middle of the biggest hurricane ever, but actually nothing's going to happen today. Like, you're not going <laughs> right. to feel any anything. Like, something happened, like the book launch, but that's the hurricane that's all around you. It's not like... 
it'll feel, it has that anticlimactic feeling on that day, I think. And that's what I think is so important about the, you call it the daily practice for me, meditation, exercise, all these things, but also recognizing for anyone listening to this show, because it's a pivot podcast, I call them high net growth individuals, that we love the complexity of building the thing. I love troubleshooting business and and piloting new income streams and working on the book. It's a very complex task. And so it's also not pinning our happiness to these one-off moments like launch day and expecting life to... I think that's a good point. It's it's like truly enjoying the whole process. And so even in the months leading up to the launch, I would say to myself, everything is great. I'm so grateful for my life and business as it is right now. If nothing else changed, it's wonderful. And anything else is icing on the cake. So I, I feel like from from reading the book, from talking to you, uh, from having gone through many of these experiences myself and, and talking to many people with these experiences, here's what people can get out of the book. And, and correct me if I'm wrong or add to it. First off, recognizing when you need a pivot in your life, that's critical. But, but combined with the fact that you should always be having yes. the eye towards the pivot. So yeah. learning new skills, building your network, uh, constantly taking inventory of your skills, you know, being aware of what's out there and what excites you and so on. So, but, but again, most importantly, being aware of that plateau that you might feel when you need to pivot. Then learning kind of the skills needed to pivot. So what else are you interested in? How can you combine your, your old interest to, to, to build something you're the best at? Like, you know, when you take A plus B, you know, have something that you're great at the, the combination of A and B. Um, and then finally, the actual execution steps required. You know, how much runway do you need? Uh, how, what's the psychology of a pivot? Uh, what steps do I take with my network? Um, what, you know, how do I combine learning skills with making money with, you know, how do I balance all these things at the same time? So this is kind of like the Bible to what we now need in our economy so much, which is that we're moving from this kind of career economy where people would spend 40 years at a job to this sort of I don't like the phrase gig economy because that implies smaller uh, money, but I think we are moving to a more personalized economy where each person is like me, Inc. And you have to, you have to make sure me, Inc. flourishes, you know, regardless of what's happening in the economy or what's happening in the companies around you. And this book is really about how to make me, Inc. flourish. You've captured it so perfectly. And I would just say that the reason it's called a pivot and not a 180 is that you're doubling down on something. You're shifting in a new related direction. One yeah, of the I feel like it's not a 180 at all. Like It's not yeah, like you're going from, point. yeah, you're not going from being like a gardener to being a basketball no. player. You're and, going from maybe being a, a gardener slash historian <laughs> to a landscape right. architect. And that's why it's like, stop driving yourself crazy by trying to look too far outside yourself and really look at what's already under your feet, what's already, you're already doing. And what I realized though, because pivoting, I kind of co-opted this term from Silicon Valley. It's anyone in Silicon Valley would say, oh, it's so played out by now. But when startups and businesses pivot, it's because they have failed at their initial strategy. So they need to pivot to save the business from collapse. However, as you just so eloquently said, when it comes to our career, pivot is plan A. It's not a failure. It's actually the new mindset. It's, right. You have to You're do this. constantly doing this. Constantly. And then the pivot points are less sharp because you're just in the habit of pivoting. And, and again, the pivots can be small and they can be large. So that's, I'm not saying you have to quit everything every two years, but pivot is a mindset and it's a method. Well, for your listeners, um, you know, who, who, the listeners who read the book and who benefit from it, what five books, what five other books should they read to really kind of 
take it to the next level and understand, you know, all, you know, what they need to do and, and what, what other books inspired you that as you were writing this? Number one, Choose Yourself of by course, James Altucher. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Truly, it's all it's it's fantastic. And I even if we weren't sitting here face to face, I highly recommend it. And that really inspired me before writing Pivot. I love Anti Fragile. I, I love Anti Fragile as well. Yeah. And you know, that's a book about economics. But I actually think it's an excellent book to apply to completely, personal life. Completely, yes. and every piece of adversity that I experience in life or business. I think about how does this make me anti-fragile? How am I better because of this chaos and uncertainty? Love it. And so part of pivoting is embracing that chaos and uncertainty. And in the same until everyone says, to a point, if and, you have too you, much. And you know, not and, and anti-fragile is important to realize. It's not about being resilient. It's about being anti-fragile. Yes. It's about actually getting better. Better so, from, from chaos and As opposed to just surviving. Yes. Okay, so that's two Love books. It. Third would be The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. It's Love it. It's happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking. Because as cheerful as I am, I really don't like all the Pollyanna self-help where I have what I call the personal development police that sort of like beat me up every time I have a negative thought in my brain. And what I love about Oliver's work is it's kind of like just relax. It's okay to think about worst case scenarios or your own death or failure. I love it. We yeah, did a he's got that. Uh, it's an excellent book. Oliver's been on my podcast. He's got that kind of stoic yeah. view of things. And yeah. he really applies that to looking at all the real popular self-help uh, books and genres that are out there. So I yes. think it's a great book. Next up, 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Also has been on my podcast. Great guy. And I know, James, you, you've had everyone you, under the sun. But you must have run into him when you were doing your meditation app because now he's got an excellent meditation app out there. Yes, I did. And I went to his book launch in New York. He gave a talk and I asked a question and I was so nervous. But I asked if he felt nervous to talk about drugs so publicly because he yeah. still works at GMA. His book is so funny. And sometimes I feel bad when I give advice on podcasts about meditation, because it truly has rewired my brain, I used to be very anxious and I would worry a lot. And uh, all the way up until three years ago, coincidentally, when I started meditating. <laughs> anyway, his book is so funny. And so I feel bad because it sounds like, eat your spinach, you should meditate. But he actually shares the research and his journey to finding it. And he's I think so his funny. journey also is what makes the book too. Like just, yeah. his, he was like the I don't know. At the time, he was the anchor for a nighttime news show at, at ABC, and uh, he just like fell apart yeah. uh, because of this combination of drugs and panic attacks and so on. Right. And he writes all about it. Yes, and he's so sharp, and I love his podcast, too. His is a great one. What the heck? I didn't even know he had a podcast. What? He hasn't. He hasn't asked me to go on his Jeez, podcast. Dan you're Harris, out. where are you? Get on it. We need to make this connection happen ASAP. All right, so fourth book. Oh my gosh, so that was four. So the fifth one now, I'm going to have to say wild card. Pick something that makes you laugh. I love reading. I just finished You'll Grow Out of It by Jesse Klein. Uh, Amy Schumer's book is coming out at some uh, point. Yeah. I love her. So I think... Yeah, I think her book's I coming think, out in October. Yeah. Yeah, and something. Jesse Klein's book, which Jesse Klein's a head writer on the Amy Schumer yes. show and, or Inside Amy Schumer. <laughs> was laugh out loud funny. And so I think, you know, go sideways. And, and that's true for life as well. I talk in the book about having a hobby. And one of my hobbies the last, I've lived in New York five years, was learning how to do a handstand in the middle of the room without coming down until I chose to. And something like that literally turns me upside down on a regular basis. And it feels so playful and fun. So I would say add to the reading repertoire. One thing that just has nothing to do with your work or that is totally sideways, like how you're learning DJing and stand-up comedy. Maybe there's something that someone's curious about. I read a lot of finance books that are kind of worked into Pivot. I, I really—do um, you know James Rickards? Yeah, yeah. Death of Jim Money? Jim Rickards, yes. Yes. 
So I, I found stuff like that really inspiring to come back to this adjacent possible idea. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, Jenny, I've taken over your podcast. Jenny. Congratulations once again on the book launch of Pivot. It's a great book. I encourage everyone to read it. And I will return this podcast to you now. Here it is. Have it back. Oh, my goodness. It's better for it. James, thank you so, so much for being the guest host on launch day today. No for problem. writing such an awesome blurb for the back of the book. And for just being one of my favorite neighbors and New York friends. I'm Excellent. so grateful for you. Thank you, Jenny. And thanks, everyone, for listening. All right, that wraps up this episode of the Pivot Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And Pivot is officially out. So grab your copy wherever books are sold. Even better, tell a friend and leave a review on Amazon. Reviews help other readers decide whether to purchase a copy, and it helps build a lot of momentum in these early days of the launch. Thank you all so much in advance. I couldn't do this without you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? <laughs>